Amen, indeed. His is the kingdom, the glory, and the power. That is our hope. Brethren, if you would open your copy of God's holy word this week to the short, the brief epistle of the Apostle John, the second epistle of John. My intention, um, as I, I think I mentioned previously, is uh, to, just because there is such, there is significant overlap, but there's also some new emphases and material in 2nd and 3rd John. I thought it would be remiss if we didn't at least take a brief look at the two brief short one chapter epistles that John wrote uh, to, as we'll see, the elect lady, as well as um, to uh, the one Diotrephes, Demetrius, father. Uh, and so as we do that, I think there's much good and, and we will gain from this, as well as some reinforcement uh, before we move on to the next sermon series. So today, I'm going to invite you, let's look at 2 John. 2 John. If you would stand for the hearing of God's word. 2 John. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth, as we received commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Now this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment. That as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Having many things to write to you, I do not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. Children of your elect sister, greet you. Amen. Father, please take this brief epistle, press its content into our hearts. Father, may we be faithful to you. May we walk and believe the truth know the truth, know you, the God who is true. And Father, may we not only inherit eternal life, but Father, may we therefore be agents of the advance of your kingdom and truth in this world as in heaven. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, beloved. As we begin today, I want to turn uh, your attention to the quotes, the quotations on the front of your order of worship. I think, as I was thinking about the, the overall emphasis of this epistle and John's burden here that we're going to be looking at, it's interesting that the, I would say the key word, the key word that we see in this epistle more than any others is the word truth. First four verses, he uses the word five times, a little bit more later. John's preeminent concern for these saints is that they that they walk in the truth. It's along the line of what he said in 1 John, that they walk in the light. 
When he said God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, the idea of light, of God's glory, encompasses all that God is, truly. So it encompasses the, the light, the fact of God's righteousness, His holiness. It encompasses all that is true about the true God. So it encompasses doctrine as well as practice. But it also encompasses the reality that the God who is true, the true God, is, is light, but He is also love. Not an, as we're going to see, it's not just an open-ended love, uh, affection for anything and everything, but it's a love that is tied to irrevocably and wonderfully tied to His light. So that the God who is the true God, in truth, is the God who is light love, love light. He is, say, is God love or light? Yes. There is no such thing as true light that is not that is not flavored with and compelled in God's, by the love of God for what is, you know. Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul writes there, let your love be without hypocrisy. Great. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. You can't even talk about love without getting into the issues of what is evil and good. Right? Love is an affection it is a deep affection, but it is one that is guided by, compelled by truth, righteousness of God's law. It's where so much of our modern society, even the church, has gone astray today as we talk about God as love and this and love, love, but it's, it's unhinged from truth. So the God who is, the God who is true, is the God that is, and He is the only true God. And God, in John's exhortation to us at the end of 1 John, was children, little children. Remove yourselves, have nothing to do with idols, with anything that is false in doctrine, false, ungodly, unrighteous in practice, anything that is not truly of the affection of God for His Word, for Himself, for His people, and for the world, for the redemption of the world. That's the God who is. And the world, as a church, we deal with God as He is, not as we want Him to be. In fact, in the reality is it's he who deals with us, not the other way around. So brethren, John's burden, again in Second John today, is that his people would know the truth. This one that he calls the elect lady, she would know the truth. These, these quotes on the front, I'll just read uh, the last bit, Francis Schaeffer, the last part of that. He says, truth carries with it confrontation. Truth demands confrontation. Loving confrontation loving confrontation, but confrontation nevertheless. If our reflex action is always accommodation, regardless of the centrality of the truth involved, there is something wrong. John MacArthur, the, the last bit of his, uh, just for time's sake, I'll key on that last sentence. Tolerance toward people is a good and a biblical virtue, but tolerance toward false teaching is sin. And then lastly, Brother Vance Havner, I love this. The early Christians condemned false doctrine in a way that sounds almost unchristian to us today. Well, so be it. I'm with Jesus. I hope you are too. Brethren, we will stand on truth because we love, not truth in spite of love. It's because we love the world, because we love the true God, that we must and will stand in truth. We will speak the truth in love. So let's just look together. Let's look together at this brief epistle 
and this emphasis on the truth that sets people free. Because we have been set free, free, beloved brethren. As Jesus said, they will know the truth and the truth will make you free. The reason why we love the truth is because it is that truth that has made and is keeping us free. It is that truth that is keeping us in eternal life. It is that truth and the true God that we know that has broken the bondage and chains of sin and despair and death in our life and has brought us into an eternal and sure hope and faith. Brethren, that's why I love truth is because that truth has set me free and it is setting me free. So let's look together. This number one, I'm just going to look at this in three, kind of three headings. Number one, uh, without getting too bogged down here, I'm going to consider the first thing, that, that what I call the context, commencement, conclusion of the epistle. What's going on here in, 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 first, in Second John? Well, John identifies himself, first of all, as the elder. And I find this very, very interesting. Uh, you know, this is Apostle John. Uh, he certainly could have come with apostolic authority and said, uh, now listen here, late lady, I'm an apostle and you need to, I was called and commissioned by Jesus and that would have all been true and so this is scripture I'm writing to you. <laughs> he could have done that. But just like Peter did in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 1, same thing. Peter and John were not only apostles, but they were also among the elders of the church of Jerusalem. Galatians 2.9 says that Peter, James, and John were recognized as pillars uh, of the church in Jerusalem. So yes, they were commissioned apostles, but the church of Jerusalem, the, the, the mother church from which all the other churches, uh, were, the, the, as the Christians were scattered and the other churches came to birth in other places, the, the first church there in Jerusalem among these converted Jews on Pentecost, the pillars were Peter, James, and John, the elders. And he addresses them here, though, as an elder, very pastorally. And, and I love that there's humility, invoking his example, not just his authority, but his example. Notice what he says here. His, his purpose in this epistle is to encourage, to exhort, to warn in advance of coming to visit. Uh, verse 12 says that his intention, his desire, is that he, his desire to write not with pen and ink, but that he hopes to see them shortly and to come speak face to face. So the hope that John has is that soon from where he is, which uh, we believe was in Ephesus uh, at the time, John had gone to Ephesus. That's probably from where he wrote 1 John. Um, and that he was then writing this letter um, with hopes of going and visiting. Uh, which brings me to the second point then. Um, we need to address this issue of, of who is the elect lady. Um, this, this is created, I will tell you, uh, when commentaries on Second John, this is like the, the you wanna, where more ink is spilled on this epistle. It's on the question of who is this. And I'm going to tell you, uh, I'm going to go ahead and tell you just humbly, uh, I'm about to do something that I very rarely do. Uh, as always, I encourage you to be Bereans, search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Um, but I, I'm about to do something that I rarely do, which is to disagree with, uh, with one of my beloved brothers in the CPC, with Brother Phil Kaiser. Uh, I, I love Phil, and actually, if you've heard his teaching on Second John, uh, it is marvelous. Uh, he just, he just uh, hits it out of the park. And, uh, he takes the elect lady to be an individual, a single woman in the church, probably divorced or widowed, um, and there's good reasons that he brings that out. Uh, I'm just going to acknowledge, I think, that there's also good reasons for seeing it as I see it, but I'm going to today as actually a reference to uh, the church, specifically to the church back in Jerusalem. I'll explain why I'm going to say that, but I want to say that up front that uh, 
you want to hear a good defense of the position uh, that the elect lady is a single woman in the church and the implications of that, I would encourage you to go to uh, just go to Kaiser Commentary and look up the uh, Bible book series and you can read what Phil wrote, uh, his sermon on Second John. It's really good. I'm going to take the position, which I, I believe is right, um, which has been maybe more the majority position, uh, but I think there's also good textual reason for it, that the elect lady, in fact, is a, is a, is a uh, picture, is, a, is an illustration, or is writing actually under the name of the elect lady to the church in Jerusalem, that John is writing this from Ephesus in his work there among the Jews of the dispersion throughout Asia Minor, where he was, where he wrote First John, and then he's writing it back to the saints in the church of Jerusalem. Why do I say that? A c- couple things. Number one, um, number one is is that this this as I said, Peter, James, and John, they were the apostles. They were specifically called to be the apostles to the dispersed dispersed Jews. In Galatians two, as I said, that uh, Peter, uh, Paul, and Barnabas had come to Jerusalem. They met with Peter, James, and John, the pillars of the church there. And when it was done, they gave them the hand of fellowship that, as it says, that Paul and Barnabas would go from there to the Gentiles, and that Peter, James, and John would go to the Jews of the dispersion. That's what it says. So Peter, James, and John, they ministered to the church, but their focus was really on the dispersed Jews, right? The, the, the children of Abraham scattered throughout the Roman Empire and the calling back of the Jews, and Paul was focusing on the Gentiles. So here's John. We believe he was writing from Ephesus, and uh, he's writing, and you mentioned he's the, to the elect lady, and then he ends, he says, the children of your elect sister greet you. Um, the, the idea there would be that John is speaking, as I perceive it, the elect sister would be the church, the churches of Western Asia, the Jewish, church, the Jewish Christians, and he's saying, your elect sister here, from where I'm writing, but I'm writing to you who are back in Jerusalem. One of the other reasons we think this is because the Apostle Peter, as I said, who was also like James and John, an, a, a, an apostle to the dispersed Jews, right? That was his call. In Peter, you can look here in 1 Peter, very briefly, at the end of 1 Peter, I remind you that Peter, as well as James, the epistle of James and 1 Peter are both written explicitly. Uh, it says at the beginning of each of those epistles that their epistles were written to the Jews, to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad, or as Peter says, to the dispersion the Jewish dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, basically Asia Minor, right? So that's who they were writing to. Um, and at the end of 1 Peter, Peter writing from Jerusalem, he writes this, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark my son. Now, let me tell you up front, to our knowledge, Peter was not in, in a literal, in literal city of Babylon because Babylon had been actually destroyed several centuries before. There was no church, as we know at this point, in Babylon where the exiles had been. The book of Revelation, I won't take you all there. Again, this gets technical, but the book of Revelation, specifically in chapters 17 and 18 especially, very clearly identifies Babylon, mystery Babylon, as the whore, but also as the one, the city in where our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. So Revelation, I think, very explicitly uses the symbol of Babylon to refer to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, that was about to be judged by King Jesus and his righteousness. Matthew 24, Jesus said this was getting ready to happen within that generation. 
So when I see John using this language, writing from Ephesus about an elect sister, the church there, writing back to the elect lady, I take it to be that he's writing back to the saints in Jerusalem, and he's warning them of the exact same sort of things that he's been seeing and have been going on among the churches of Western Asia. That's also then why there's some significant overlap uh, above that. There's also some Old Testament background uh, about this idea of two sisters. If you want to, I'm not going to have you turn there, but like in Ezekiel 23, Ezekiel talks about these two sisters, Ohala and Ohaliba. Those are big names. But he talks there about one, and he says that the two sisters, one is the Ohala, it represents the ten tribes of the north, Ohala about the two Judah and Benjamin in the south, right, after the division of the kingdom. And, the, and he says there that the Lord at that time, in Ezekiel's time, was judging them, having dispersed them because of their idolatry. But then in Ezekiel 37, the Lord gives Ezekiel this vision, and he says, take two sticks, one, and write on it the name of the northern tribes, the other the name of the southern tribes. And what you're going to do, Ezekiel, is you're going to take a symbolically prophetic sign, put them together, tie those sticks together. And he says, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring the northern tribes, the dispersed, the, my dispersed elect among the ten tribes and the dispersed elect among Judah, and I'm going to bring them back together in one body. But he uses the same sort of imagery in chapter 23 about these two sisters. Some have said, well, Steve... Jesus only has one bride. That's true. He doesn't have two brides. So what do you do with that? And my response to that, I'm just going to tell you, is, you know, it'd be kind of like saying, Jesus does only have one bride but, and one fold, but we don't use certain images of Scripture when Jesus says that, you know, for example, you are my sheep. You know, Jesus has sheep, plural. He has one bride. We don't set one image against another. Saying that there are two sisters who are part of, the, what, of the, the church that Jesus is building, and yet that they are, in some sense, one bride in, in using that figure. I don't believe those are contradictory, right? So I'm just going to tell you that. Again, you can read Phil's take if you want to consider another option. But I take the elect lady and, the, and their sister to be the church uh, in Western Asia and then writing back to the church in Jerusalem about what's going on. And you notice what he says here. Just very clearly, he, he, he specifically addresses, uh, as I take it, the church in Jerusalem, the elect lady. And he says here that his, his, the, the grace, meaning God's favor, God's privilege, God's blessing, and mercy, so deliverance from the effects of sin and misery and of your enemies, right? And in and, and verse 3, peace, peace, absence from hostility, persecution, deliverance from persecution within and without, as well as uh, disunity. Deliverance from all these things, he says, are to you. And he specifically here, he says, these things to you in truth and love. You'll notice here at the beginning of the epistle, he says, all these things he prays for them and that the Lord would bless them with them. And then in verse 4, he says, from the Lord Jesus Christ in truth and in love, as I said. So all of these blessings to you wrapped up in truth and in love. What a gift. He prays for the church in Jerusalem. And look what he also says here for the church. He says specifically that his desire, his great longing and passion, uh, here he says, is that he, verse 4, I rejoiced greatly because I found some of your children walking in truth as we received commandment from the Father. So here's what he's saying. I'm John. I'm here in Ephesus. I'm ministering to the Jews of the dispersion. 
in Western Asia. But here's what happened. I, some of the saints from Jerusalem, some of the, the saints from Jerusalem have come up to Asia. And you know what? I found that they are walking in the same truth as I've been preaching here. I see that they are serving the same God in truth. They are confessing the same Jesus in truth. They came to us and we found that there was one God, one gospel, one message. And how I rejoiced that the enemy of our souls has not been able to subvert that God has answered my prayer. He is delivering you as well as us and keeping us in the way of light and truth. That's the sense of verse 4. I rejoiced that when these children of the church in Jerusalem, the saints, came, you know what I found? I found them walking in truth. Can I tell you something, brethren, pastorally? Any man who is called to be a pastor, that, that verse resonates deeply with my soul. My yearning for every one of you in the Lord is that you would walk in the light. Because, brethren, when you are walking in the light, as he is in the light, yes, you will have fellowship. You will walk with clean conscience. The Lord will give you grace to overcome sin. You will have deep and abiding assurance. You will walk in love. And brethren, the Lord is going to do great things in and through ch children, people that are walking in his light. So brethren, my prayer for you is for me. May the Lord God keep us, as John says, walking in the truth, receiving commandments and obeying them in the Lord from the Father and from his Son, Jesus Christ. Point two. John also gives them what I'm going to call a righteous reminder. And, some, and like I said, this is the part where he speaks to them the same things he spoke in 1 John. So I'm not going to spend much time here. He rehashes a, few, a couple of things he spoke, in, and he spoke to the churches of Western Asia in, in 1 John. Number one, he speaks to them here about faith working through love. Remember the old commandment that has been made new. Look in verse 5 and 6. He says, And now I plead with you, lady... Not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard it from, from the beginning, you should walk in it. Turn back to 1 John, if you would, chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 and following. I want you to hear again what he had said to the churches of Western Asia. In 1 John, he said, By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, does not keep his commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. It's come to maturity in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you've had from the beginning. And that old commandment is the words you've heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. You may remember when we talked about this uh, a few months back, when we were in chapter 2. The idea of this old new commandment is that the, the oldness of the commandment is that it goes all the way back this goes all the way back to the beginning, to Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself was not anything that was new. Jesus didn't just make that up out of thin air, right? Jesus is standing on the shoulders, as it were, of Moses and the prophets. They would love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that second great commandment, love their neighbor as yourself. So it's old, but on the other hand, it's new. It's new in Christ. 
It's new because Jesus has come incarnate and he has revealed to us the love of God in tangible way. We have seen what the obedience to that commandment looks like in practice. We have seen it in its depths in the person and work of Jesus, what it means to love God. And Jesus told us and assured us it's not just about the outward acts of love, it's what's going on in the heart, the affection that drives the obedience of faith. That's the Sermon on the Mount, right? It's the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus has showed us love and light. So John's first point to them is remember saints in Jerusalem. Love one another in deed and truth. This is the commandment that we've had from the beginning. It, it's just as much true as the churches in Western Asia as it is back to the elect lady and her children back in Jerusalem. This is what unifies the church of Jesus Christ together. We know the truth and we walk in love toward the God who is and towards all of his people, our brethren. Those are sure marks that show that we are Christ's and he is, he, he, he is ours. We love not only our neighbor as ourself, but as 1 John says in chapter 4, I won't go there, he says we love him because he first loved us. We love him as he has loved us. By his example and because of his love for us, why we were yet sinners, we love the saints. Secondly, John also again mentions here this idea of the Antichrist. Notice, um, no, notice verse 7. Many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. And look at verse 9. Skip to verse 9. Whoever transgresses does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. I remind you, brethren, we heard this earlier in the New Testament reading from 1 John 2, 18 and following. But that's exactly what John had told the churches, the churches of Western Asia in 1 John. He had told them that the light means that those that walk in truth, that, that preach, teach, believe the truth about Jesus Christ, that they have the true God, they have the Father and the Son. They are in the way of eternal life. Those who subvert that, those who deceive and bring others into their lives, that they actually do not have the Father and the Son at all, no matter what they say doesn't matter how much they may talk about Jesus this. He says, you will know them by the truth. You will know them by their fruits. Don't be deceived because they are deceivers. They're not just deceived. You know, John could have said, if these people were simply deceived in themselves, that would be one thing, right? They would be more objects of mercy at that point. These are people that are caught in, in, in lies. They're believing in darkness but they're not just deceived, they're actually deceivers. They're actively subverting other people into their lives. And John is going to say, look, to you in Jerusalem, as well as I said to the saints in back here at the churches of Ephesus, do not be deceived. That is the spirit of Antichrist. It is what Jesus talked about in many, Matthew 24, that in the last days many false prophets would come up in my name saying, look here, you know, here's the Christ, there's the Christ. Don't believe them. Don't believe them, Jesus says. Don't be deceived. So that's the first emphasis. You will know them by their doctrine. You will know them by their practice. You will know them by what they love. It's that simple. So he says, be aware. They must confess truth. They must practice truth. And they must love truth. Brethren, that's just very straightforward. So those are the reminders. And I would ask us, as I'll say again, before we move on to the third point, you know, 
I, I've been hitting on this repeatedly in 1 John, but pastorally, I'm going to say with Peter um, uh, that uh, it's good for me to remind you again of these things I've said before. Brethren, I want to exhort you as your pastor, as your brother in Christ, uh, do not, do not uh, compromise. Do not be uh, the least bit uh, in the name of, of love, in the name of niceness, we'll see in a minute. Don't compromise truth. Truth is worth standing for. Standing for righteously, but standing for. And, but but don't, don't also, brethren, don't be the kind of people that get your, get your doctrine, your orthodoxy all right. Yes, Steve, I believe, I, I affirm the Nicene Creed. I even affirm Westminster. Don't be the sort, brethren, by God's grace, that we'd have to look at you and say, well, if that's what you believe, why do you live that way? You don't, you don't live, brethren, we walk in the light means we know the truth and we practice truth, right? We walk as Jesus walked and then we love. Don't settle, brethren, as we go forward. Do not settle. I, I appreciated what Ben prayed this morning. Don't settle for just tolerating the saints. Right? You, you, you actually said it very well. There are some saints and churches that are harder. <laughs> we, we, we may have, they're, they're brethren. They're not outside the pale. They're not enemies of the cross of Christ. They're not actively seeking to see. But them, we'd look at that and say, they've got some things that I got concerned with, right? I would acknowledge that. Brethren, I want our prayer to be such that while we keep a very sharp line of demarcation between those that are preaching, that are antichrist, preaching false doctrine, who are advocating for unrighteousness, abominations, we're not going to fellowship with that. I'm not going to have anything to do with that Jezebel spirit or with those who practice the deeds of the Nicolaitans like Revelation, the Lord warns. But brethren, for those, even those who are a little different from us, but who have the Spirit, one Lord, faith, baptism, and we can see that. They love the Scriptures, and they love Jesus as revealed in the Scriptures and His truth and His kingdom. Brethren, yes, some of them are going to be different, but I want us to be a people that we are compelled by the Spirit of the Lord that binds us together to say, I'm not just going to tolerate them, but I'm going to be an active part of seeking their good, praying with and for them, of earnestly loving them, not in word only, but deed and truth as brethren. Right? Because why do we do that? Because, brethren, that's what the spirit of the love of God in our hearts has been poured out compels us to do that. So don't, don't settle for just toleration. Brethren, press into love of the people of God, all of the people of God. Third, last point. And this is where John presses on a new application. In verses 8 and then 10 and 11, having warned them about the Antichrist who had gone out from uh, Asia. You remember in 1 John chapter 2, John said there in 2, he said, they went out from us, but they were not, they went out from us, but they weren't of us, right? Otherwise they would remain. These antichrists, these false deceivers, had been in Western Asia. John had written 1 John to warn the church in Ephesus as well as the local churches about what they were doing. He also noted that they had gone out because they hadn't gained much traction there, they had gone out. Well, where had they gone? Well, I'm going to submit to you, among other places, they had gone to Jerusalem. And he's warning them now, be aware. <laughs> the same Antichrist that had been seeking to gain foothold in our midst, they're coming your way or they've already come your way. Don't listen to it. 
It's the same thing. And here's why. So, so here's the ex- exhortation. Look at verse 8. Look to yourselves that you, we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. I think it's, it's these kind of statements that uh, actually probably inspired that quote from Brother Vance Havner that we read earlier. That uh, today, you know, Christianity today is, uh, um, you know, as he said, that we are a lot more hard as it may seem. Early Christians condemned false doctrine in a way that seems almost unchristian to us today. Right? This is definitely flying against the spirit of the age, brethren, of kind of squeamish, loose, uh, 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 unanchored affection. But John is reminding the saints that we are at war, that there's a kingdom of light and a God of light who is driving out darkness, who is advancing his kingdom and his mission in the world. And that means that we must have a righteous warfare mentality with the way that we live our lives. I think so much of the Christian church today in so many circles has forgotten, has forgotten that we are at war. (laughs) They've forgotten the dominion mandate. They've forgotten the commission. And it requires that there is a king. Jesus taught us to go forth, disciple nations, teach them to obey what he, had, what, he has, what he has commanded us. Jesus came to save the world, but he didn't come to save the world in sin. He came to save the world from sin. And we're part of that. And so, brethren, we need to have this mentality that John has here. We need to understand that, as, as, we, said last, as we said a couple of weeks ago, on the one hand, you know, that weak brethren, brethren with whom we may disagree, but who are true brethren who may be weak in a given doctrine, as we think, or maybe there's a practice they have that we would say, I, I, that's, I don't think they should, you know, that's Romans 14, right? We work with them. We don't set stumbling blocks before them. We accept them. We, break, we, we go when they're caught in a trespass and we lift them out. But brethren, when you have heretics, those who are divisive, those who are sowing discord in the church, those who are actively seeking to subvert the truth and to bring other brethren with them. John, in a way that seems almost weird to us, says, no toleration. I'm reminded of the words, you know, Paul in in Titus 1, he makes this staggering statement, another one of those that seems weird to us today. He's speaking of elders. He, he, He commissions Titus to appoint elders in their midst but one of the reasons, he says, because there's those that are going around seeking to subvert, going from house to house. This is the way heretics usually do, right? They don't come right into the service of worship and say, I'm going to come here and challenge uh, what you heard today preached. I'm going to come and stand up against the pastor. What they do is after the service, they'll go from house to house, and they'll try to spread discord and division and lies. Right? They're very subversive. They're deceitful. But... Titus says in Titus 1, he says that the elders are to people like that. He says their mouths need to be stopped. (laughs) Their mouths need to be stopped. Titus in chapter 3, verse 10 and 11 says, Reject a divisive man after the first and second warning, knowing that such a one is self-condemned. John specifically calls us to do these two things. Number one, do not, do not aid don't give aid to those that are, uh, that are in apostasy and heresy. 
Don't give aid to uh, Antichrist's spirit and their evil deeds. And, don't, and again, don't do this in the name of being nice. Brethren, the church in America, by and large, is just so infected with the, with the cult of niceness that we have forgot that the spirit, the fruit that we're called to cultivate is kindness. But kindness, you see, has a Godward orientation. Kindness is I'm choosing in, in humility and meekness to treat you as you are as a brother or sister despite something you may have done to offend or I may have done to offend. But I'm choosing in faith with a Godward orientation in faith to be kind to you. The problem with niceness, brethren, is niceness is fundamentally men-pleasing. It's men-fearing. So much of our evangelical subculture today is infected with niceness because they fear men more than they fear God. And ultimately, they love themselves more than they love people. They love their position more than they love the souls of the lost. Because if they love the souls of the lost, they wouldn't compromise on truth. They would be courageous and bold in love. So John says, if they come to your door, if you find these type of people coming to your door to subvert, spreading discord within the church, preaching to you some other Jesus, Paul says in Galatians 1, that we didn't preach some other Jesus than the apostolic Jesus, may they be anathema. You know, that's another gospel. That's another Jesus. That's not the Jesus who saves. That's not the Jesus who gives eternal life. And if it's true that you become like what you worship, then man, we better not worship and listen to and aid and abet enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Because that would make me guilty, maybe unwittingly, but it would make me a treason against the king. You see that? When Jesus tells us to seek first his kingdom and righteousness, that means that we must also be careful not to do things that aid and abet those who are enemies of his kingdom and righteousness. So, brethren, the true God is light and truth. Jesus is come in the flesh. He is eternal Son of God. He is fully God, fully man. He is the only Savior by whom we must be saved. He is the Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Everything our confession says, the Father is what He is, the Spirit what He is, the Church is one holy Catholic apostolic. Anybody who comes bringing doctrine that doesn't square with our fundamental confession do not open the door to them. So next time a JW or a Mormon shows up at your door, the exhortation here, brethren, don't, oh, well, you know, I, I know they're wrong, but, uh, you know, I can still give you a cup of tea. <laughs> brethren, in the name of Jesus, I can't let you in here. I can't let you come in here and seek to subvert me and my household from the way of truth. I'm not going to be aid and abet you in spreading lies. Know who the enemy is, brethren. Because if you do that, John says, you're aiding their evil deeds. Such false brethren actually destroy people's lives and their souls. They bring them into death, not life, although they promised them life. They've rejected the Son of God and His righteous kingdom, and they are in fact God's enemies and therefore our enemies. So don't invite them to your home. Don't greet them in the name of Jesus. Don't go give them a big bear hug. Brethren, I'm just going to ask you. That, now, that seems terribly harsh. And you may have people 
You may have other saints even that would look at you and say, how, how unkind of you. <laughs> Brethren, I, just, I don't know how else to say. John is quite clear here. It's certainly true, as Jesus says, bless those who curse you. Right? Pray for those who spitefully use you. You know, those who are enemies, you know, you show kindness to them. If somebody who is an enemy of God and Christ unwittingly, you know, they don't know what they're doing, slaps me upside the cheek or whacks me or spitefully uses me, what does Jesus say? Don't return it in kind. Leave vengeance to the Lord, right? But I remind you, brethren, that the scriptures make a distinction between those that do something in ignorance and those that do it and lacking in energy. You may say, Steve, is that true? Remember, why don't you turn to 1 Timothy real quick as we wrap up. 1 Timothy 1. Uh, real quick here, but look at 1 Timothy 1. I, I want to show you a passage. We tend to gloss over this, but this is a very vitally important thing we need to see here. 1 Timothy chapter 1. The Apostle Paul speaking here. Again, the context of this whole thing, remember, was that Timothy would not give heed to fables and disputes and listen to people who are spreading dissension so that the church would walk in love from a pure heart, clean conscience, sincere faith. And he says that many have turned aside into foolish talk. But then look what he says here. Look, at, look here at verse 12 and 13. Apostle Paul, given his testimony, says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer. Now, he had blasphemed the Spirit, brethren. I was a persecutor. I killed Christians. I was an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Don't skip that last phrase. Brethren, Paul was doing all kinds of wicked, evil things. He thought he was doing it Please the God that he knew. God had mercy on him. Remember Jesus on the cross. He prayed. He said, Father, forgive them. Why? For they don't know what they do. Don't skip that last phrase. God is extraordinarily merciful to people who do sin in ignorance. But brethren, when there is somebody that has been part of the church of Jesus Christ who has known the truth, they have walked in the light. They have seen, they've heard the doctrine of Jesus and they have repudiated and said nothing or they have subverted it and said, we are willingly, deliberately believing a lie and we're going to bring others into that lie. Brothers and sisters, they are not doing it ignorantly in unbelief. They know what they do. That's where Hebrews 6 comes in. And those terrifying words there is because they know what they do. So brethren, be able to distinguish between those that are committing the sin to death and not. Those who are hard-hearted enemies, liars, deceivers, versus those who are deceived. But brethren, don't let them into your house. If you must, talk to them on your front porch. I know I've had that where I've had a Mormon come at one point to our door, you know, whatever, and I said, hey, you know what? I'll take you outside. Maybe we'll talk on the front porch, but I can't have you in my house and I can't greet you. And that was the verse I cited right there. We'll talk outside. And John just says, because if you do that, you're aiding their evil deeds. And he actually warns them there that if you do this, you may be in danger of losing a reward. You say, well, what is that all about? What is John talking about losing rewards? I won't go into a full theology of rewards just to say that John just, he says, look, 
The king of kings is going to reward his faithful servants on that day. The scripture speaks of crowns of glory, crown of righteousness, crown of life. Right? Biblically, the idea of crowns isn't so much that when we get to heaven, I'm worried about how much gold is in my crown, right? That's not what I'm, the idea is that you're going to be crowned with life, crowned with righteousness, crowned with everlasting glory. But brethren, there's a warning here I don't want you to miss. He says that when we aid and abet the enemy, that the danger is that we will lose our reward, part of our reward. I don't know all exactly what that is going to entail, but brethren, if that in any way involves a diminishment of my capacity to enjoy and, 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 and to see and savor the eternal God forevermore in, in heaven, if that involves any way of my lessening of my eternal blessing, brethren, don't you think that's enough reason to say, yeah, I'm, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to mess with those who, deceive, who lie and deceive in the church. I want all of Jesus all the time for all eternity. Amen? Is that what you want? Brethren, these are strong words. But brothers, I want to just close and just tell you, brethren, as we, as we look at this hard epistle, my, my yearning again for you and I, brethren, let's be people of the truth. Let's love the saints enough to call them to truth, to show them the truth, to show them the way of light. One of the things that the Lord is calling us as a congregation, we've talked an awful lot today uh, about our relationship to the church of Jesus Christ in Peoria. Brethren, part of what the Lord is calling Resurrection Church to be is to be not only a light to the world, but brethren, to be a light, a glorious light to the church of Jesus Christ here. A light to bring us all together in truth and unity and blessing. So, brethren, let's embrace that call and let's be faithful and true to God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that you have loved us. Father, I acknowledge to you right now that while the obedience of faith that you have called us to is to be true to you, Lord, we are prone to wander. Father, I, we are so prone to wander. We are easily deceived. We are often like dumb sheep and things that sound plausible that are actually another gospel, another Jesus, we are, we are very easily often, Father, uh, led into astray. I pray for each of us here, and I appeal to you, Jesus, as the good shepherd, and I, and I appeal for your grace as an under-shepherd. Lord God, keep every one of us safely, firmly in your sheepfold. And Father, when there are wolves that are coming to the gate, Father, I'm reminded Jesus says that the, the false shepherds, they come in by another way, but he who comes in by the door is the true shepherd. And all those that come in through the Jesus are true sheep. So, Father, may we recognize wolves at the gates. May we recognize and reject lies that are seeking to subvert and devour the sheep. Father, may we love your brethren as you love the brethren. Father, keep us safe, we pray. Keep every one of us and our children Keep us all, Father, walking in truth, living in truth, practicing truth, loving truth. And Father, we commit our souls to you because we know that you have loved us with an everlasting love and you are able to keep us from stumbling and to preserve us faultless before your throne without blemish. So Lord, it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. Brethren,
having been exhorted to abide in the truth today, would have us to sing our psalm, our hymn rather, 